her. At that moment, the spirit left her when her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was uh, commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourselves, we are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in this house. And that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately him and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. When it was daylight, the magistrate sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, The magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, They beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and threw us into prison. And now they want to get rid of us quietly? No, let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, And when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please do sit down, everyone. The good news is that we are back online. The bad news is that unlike the Death Star, we are not fully operational. So I need to move this along here because I think only one of the cameras is working. Is that okay? They can see. Great. They can see. Brilliant. Um, Great. And apologies to everyone watching online as well for the technical problems. I have no idea how technology works, so it's not my fault. Um, (laughs) um, But yes, 
as Pete said, today we're starting a new series in the book of Acts. And Acts is actually a follow-on to the book of Luke. If, you, if you've read the Gospel of Luke, but you haven't read the book of Acts, then you haven't read Luke's second volume. It's a bit like reading, you know, the first book of your favorite two-volume books. I don't know what they are. And you reading the first one and then never getting around to reading the second. So uh, over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking and we're going to be starting in Acts chapter 16. So if you've never had a chance yet to read Acts, why don't you use this as a chance? Catch up with us over the next few weeks. Read Acts 1 to Acts 16. It's great. Uh, you won't be disappointed. So far, the gospel, the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection, as Pete said, it has gone out from Jerusalem. It's gone from Jerusalem down out to Judea, Samaria, to Syria. And when we catch up with our passage this morning, we're in Galatia, a region in uh, what we would now call Turkey. It's, as it's been going, it's been transforming lives. But it's also been facing opposition everywhere it goes. And we're going to see both how this transformation and this opposition develop as the gospel goes on to a new location, as it advances further and further. Because our passage today, well, our passage today records a milestone moment. Our passage today records the first instance we have of the gospel reaching the continent of Europe. And as we read about it, it helps us to remember that as easy as it is sometimes for us to forget, the gospel doesn't actually come from Europe. It isn't European in any special way. Of course, it comes from the Middle East. It comes from Jerusalem, from Judea. And we're going to see today, what we're going to see over the next few weeks, that Europe's own uh, cultures, Europe's own societies had to be challenged by and transformed by the gospel. And there are two important things to recognize here about this milestone moment. And the first thing to note, actually, is that in one sense, this wasn't really a very dramatic change for Paul and for his companions. It wasn't as dramatic as we might think. Here's a map of Paul's second missionary journey. We should just come up there, and I've even got the laser pointer for the first time, so I'm excited by that. And Pete told us how Paul had gone up, and he's here in Galatia at the beginning of our passage. And he's going to go over to Troas and over the sea to Philippi, Macedonia. Now, of course, when we tend to look at this map, we tend to think of this whole area here as largely Muslim, Middle Eastern, it's Turkey. And this area over here as largely Western, Christian heritage, Greece. But that, of course, is really a bit of an anachronism because that's not how they would have viewed it at the time. This whole territory, it was all Greek-speaking, and it was all controlled by Rome. If you were confused by the idea of Asia in our passage, well, that's because Asia is actually just this chunk of modern-day Turkey, the Roman province of Asia. It's not the continent, the biggest continent in the world as we think of it today. And so, yes, we need to be careful not to think anachronistically. In Paul's day, this whole territory was a lot more integrated what Paul was doing in our passage, he was going to Macedon, to Macedonia. He sees a Macedonian man, not a generic European. He's going from one largely Greek-speaking Roman-controlled province to another one. And so whilst Paul and his companions were breaking new ground for the gospel here, they wouldn't have seen it in quite the dramatic way that we may be tempted to see it today. 
However, having said that, the second thing to note here is that God is clearly in control of this situation. It's God who wants the gospel to cross the sea. That is very, very clear. God is fulfilling his plan through Paul here. And even though Paul may not have seen it as dramatically as we might view it now, God knows the future of the world. He knows what the world will look like. And he knows how dramatic this move really is. Paul may not have seen how big a thing this was, but God knew. Verses 6 and 7, they show us that it's the Holy Spirit who drives Paul and his companions across the sea. Firstly, the Spirit prevents them from going into Asia, that that red province we saw in the bottom corner there. That would have been the natural next step from Galatia for Paul to go to Asia and the big cities there like Ephesus. But the Holy Spirit stops that from happening. If they can't go that way, then the next step is to go up. They can't go down, that's the sea. So they go up, they head north to Bithynia, to the the big cities over there. But again, the Holy Spirit stops them. Their first choice and their second choice are both cancelled. Instead, God funnels them. They can't go that way, they can't go that way, they have to go that way. He funnels them to the sea. It's God who's in control of this journey. And that's reassuring, isn't it? Because as we sit here in Manchester today, we, today we, can, we can look back over those almost 2,000 years and see that it was God who made sure that the gospel came here to Manchester today. It could have gone one way, it could have gone another way, and of course it did ultimately go all of those ways, but he made sure it would come here, it would cross to Europe and come to Manchester here today. All of us sat in this church worshipping God from wherever we've come together and so when we think about that, when we, sometimes it's tempting, isn't it, I think, to think about how church numbers are declining across Britain. The number of people in the censuses who, who call themselves Christians is declining every 10 years, every time we do a census. And, and in one sense, it isn't wrong to lament that, to feel sad about that, but we don't need to fear it because we see in our passage that it is God who is in control of where the gospel goes. God is in control of who hears his word and who doesn't? And we know that God even now is controlling the gospel to go to new places, places where the gospel has never been heard before, even today. But eventually, they cross over from Troas on the um, Turkish coast over to Macedon, to a Roman colony city there called Philippi. Here, Luke picks out three people to focus on, three specific people who've come from all sorts of different backgrounds who we see transformed by the gospel. Lydia, the slave girl, and the jailer. All three of these, Lydia, the slave girl, and the jailer, all three are very different, and yet they're all transformed by the power of the gospel. The first person Luke focuses on, the first recorded convert in the whole of Europe, is ironically from Asia. Lydia. She's from the city of Thyatira, which was back in that province of Asia. On the Sabbath, Paul would normally go to the synagogue in the city to speak to any Jews who were there. But we have to assume that there weren't many Jews in um, Philippi, possibly because it is a Roman colony city. And so instead of going to the synagogue, he goes down to the river where he knows that the, the small number of Jews that there are would be meeting to pray. And f- what we find there is we find Jews and we find non-Jewish worshippers of God, Gentile worshippers of God, which Gentile just means non-Jewish, people who, who worship God, but they aren't Jewish ethnically. And so Paul goes to them, and there he finds Lydia, 
Lydia is one of these Gentile, these non-Jewish worshippers of God. We find out she sells purple cloth, which means, which is expensive, which means she's probably relatively well off. She's probably quite comfortably well off. And she hears Paul preach the gospel and she responds positively to the message. Ultimately, she and all her household are baptized. And in response, out of the thankfulness of her heart, she invites Paul and Silas and the others to come and stay in her house with her. And by the end of the passage, we find out that a house becomes the first church in Philippi, possibly the first church in the whole of Europe. Her thankfulness to Jesus for her salvation shows through in her generous hospitality. And in many ways, Lydia is, in, in some senses, the, the epitome of the upper middle class convert, isn't she? As a worshipper of God, she'd already been trying to live quite a sort of respectable life, and, and she had plenty of means. She wasn't struggling to get by or anything like that. And she responded intellectually to a sort of classic gospel exposition. It ticks all those kind of 1950s boxes. But I think it's easy when we see that to lose sight of just what the, what's happened here, of just how powerfully the gospel has been working here. Here is this woman who has been going about her daily life, who's heard the gospel preached to her once. Paul has spoken to her once about what Jesus does, and her heart is transformed, just like that. It just happened like that. And, and I wonder if sometimes for us here, if, if, if we have heard the gospel, and we've responded, and we've become Christian, but actually our lives weren't particularly noteworthy or interesting before, we can feel a bit bad about people who, often the people who get to come up to the front, who've had all these extraordinary things happen to them, and something extraordinary has happened, and we think, well, my story's a bit boring, really, isn't it? No one wants to hear that. But actually, every story of the gospel working in our lives, everyone who becomes a Christian, that is a powerful, transformative miracle that only God can do. And he does it to Lydia here in this passage. Yeah, the second person we meet transformed by the gospel is at the opposite end of the spectrum to Lydia. If Lydia was a sort of respectable, well-off, upper-middle-class, this slave girl is the lowest of the low. She's no money, no property, no rights of any sort. And to make matters worse, she's possessed by a spirit. The English translation doesn't pick it up, but in the Greek, she's described as a pythoness by Luke, which means that she was believed to channel the words of the Roman and Greek god Apollo. She can tell fortunes and tell people the future, this was the idea, because it was the god Apollo, one of the most powerful, one of the most famous gods of the ancient world, who was supposed to be speaking through her. In that sense, really, she acted a bit like a ventriloquist dummy. It wasn't really her that was speaking. It was Apollo speaking through her. So when Paul commands the spirit to come out of her, it shows two things. Firstly, we see that the transformative power of the gospel is strong. It rescues this poor slave girl from the misery of being controlled by this evil spirit. And it shows that the gospel, as spoken by Paul, is as powerful as Jesus was in Luke. We see in Luke's epistle, in gospel, we see in all of the gospels how Jesus has this power to take out evil spirits. And we see it here in Europe right now through the gospel. But secondly, it also shows that the gospel directly challenges the cultures into which it comes. 
it challenges here the culture of the Greek and Roman world where it would have been perfectly acceptable. It would have even been a positive thing for this slave girl to be speaking these words that are apparently from one of their favorite gods. And yet Paul comes along and removes it. And this, of course, well, it causes opposition. And we're going to see this again and again in this series through the book of Acts. We see it all the way through. Driving out the spirit leaves this slave girl's owners out of pocket. She'd been a cash cow for them. People had come and paid. And of course, she didn't get to keep any of the money. She was a slave. The owners pocketed all of this money. Now she's just an ordinary slave girl. And so, very cross, they drag Paul and Silas before the magistrates, the people controlling law and order in Philippi. And they say, look what they say. If you've got your Bibles to hand, just look at verses 20 and 21. They're clever, these people. They don't say, punish these people because we've lost money. Look what they say. They say, these men are Jews. They're throwing our city, our Roman city, our good, decent Roman city, into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept. Do you see what they're getting at? These wandering Jews with their alien culture, they're a threat to us good Romans. And so what happens? Well, exactly what they hoped. The crowd are whipped up by this xenophobia and they attack Paul and Silas. And without a proper trial, the magistrates order Paul and Silas beaten with rods and thrown into prison. Though the gospel power has rescued this slave girl from this life of misery, in doing so it has clashed with the pagan culture of the time and triggered a violent reaction. We'll see this again and again and again. And so battered and bruised, Paul and Silas are dragged to jail. Here the the jailer does what he's told. He locks them up tight. Even their legs are put in stocks. He is not going to let them go. Magistrates have told them to lock them up tight. That is what he is going to do. And that, of course, is how we are introduced to this, the third of the three people that Luke wants to introduce us to in Philippi. We've had Lydia, the wealthy trader in Dai. We've had the slave girl possessed by a spirit. And now we've got our third character, the third person converted in, in, in Philippi, this no-nonsense Roman jailer. And this jailer, well, he seems to fit the bill of a classic Roman jailer, if you like. He's he's probably an ex-soldier. That would have been normally the case. Too old to march around the empire, takes a settled job. A safe pair of hands. Someone who's shown through years of loyal service that he'll do as he's told. That he's not romantic or sentimental. That if he needs to be harsh, he'll be harsh. Someone who they can trust to do the dirty work. But this jailer gets more than he bargained for with Paul and Silas. Rather than moaning and groaning after their beating, as you might expect, instead they sing and they pray, even at midnight. The rest of the prisoners, well, they're captivated by this. They're captivated by this, these two people who've come in and who are singing and praying, even as they're beaten, even as they're stuck in chains. And these, <laughs> these prisoners are so captivated that even when this giant earthquake hits and they see their chance to get out of there, to escape like any normal person would do, they stay. They stay and stay with Paul and Silas. The jailer, well, you know, we've said he's not a sentimental man. He's been sleeping. He hasn't hasn't been listening to these two people with their caterwauling in the middle of the night. No. But the earthquake, of course, well, that shocks him awake. And he runs out into the dark prison. 
Now, you just have to imagine, of course, that, you know, they didn't have lights. You couldn't just flick the light on in those days. It's the middle of the night. This room is dark. He realizes there's been an earthquake, and, and fumbling around, he realizes that the doors are all open. In panic, he assumes what any normal person would have assumed, that, that all the prisoners would have seen their chance and got out of there. And, of course, that's bad news for him. Because if all the prisoners have escaped, then as this honorable Roman in that, in that Roman culture of the time, he would have been expected to fall on his sword, literally. And so utterly despairing for his life, the jailer prepares to do just that when he hears through the darkness a sound of hope. Paul's voice saying, don't harm yourself. We're all still here. Don't harm yourself, jailer. We're all still here. The jailer's hard heart, which has been sort of pierced by this fright for his life, realizes that Paul and Silas have just saved him. By, by not running away themselves, by keeping all of the other prisoners there, they have saved his life. And so he knows now that these two men, these two troublemakers, who've been saying all this strange stuff about Jesus and about salvation, and, uh, uh, these, he's, who he's just assumed are the troublemakers the magistrates have told him, so he's locked them up. Well, he knows now that what they say is powerful. He knows now that what they say must be true, and he realizes now that what they say he must need. And so he calls on them and says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And the response is simple. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That's it. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And so we have this remarkable passage where this jailer isn't just saved from the first death, but ultimately saved from the second death too. All his sins are forgiven because the man with the heart of flint gains a heart of faith. The transformative power of the gospel turns this man with no compassion, this man with the heart of flint who does what he's told, into a man who cares for Paul and Silas. We see it. He takes them out of the jail. He washes their wounds. He gives them a meal and he keeps them in his house. And of course, in return for washing them, he is himself washed in baptism. And so this third Philippian is transformed. So Lydia, the slave girl, the Roman jailer, each so different, yet each of them transformed by the gospel. This gospel message that God sent his son Jesus into the whole world, not just to Jerusalem and Judea, to the whole world to take our place to take the punishment of all those who believe in him, to restore their relationship to God, to offer them eternal life. That message had never been heard in the streets of Philippi before. It had never been heard in the whole province of Macedonia before. As far as we know, it had never been heard in the whole continent of Europe before. And yet, as soon as it lands, it begins to transform lives. Paul's missionary journey here, it's only partway through. But in these three people, we see hope for all of us. If you aren't a Christian and you've thought to yourself in the past, 
you know, I just don't think, I just don't think I could be a Christian. Temperamentally, I just, I just don't see how I could do it. Culturally, it's just so different to how I live my life. Well, our passage shows us that the transformative power of the gospel is for everyone. It doesn't matter what your temperament is. It doesn't matter what your cultural background is. It doesn't matter what, what you're, where you're coming from, whatever is in your background. It doesn't matter. Here in front of us is a church full of people of all sorts of different backgrounds. Everyone temperamentally different, culturally different. People coming from all over the world. People from all sorts of different economic backgrounds. All here today, so many transformed by the gospel. Here in our passage, three people so different. Lydia, the slave girl, the jailer, all transformed by the gospel. If it worked for them, it can work for you. Maybe you think you can't become a Christian because, because it's too late. You spent your whole life not being a Christian. Because you've spent, you've spent your whole life away from Christianity and, and you've lived your life in a way that's just so different from Christianity. Surely you've done that thing. No, there's no way God can forgive you now. There's no way you can be a Christian now. Well, well, the transformative power of the gospel is for everyone. That's what our passage says. Think about this jailer, this flinty-hearted jailer who has lived his life going around fighting people, suppressing rebellions against the Roman Empire, probably killing people, who does as he's told, who doesn't care about other people. Here he is transformed. Think about this slave girl possessed by an evil spirit, no control over her own life at all. See her transformed. Believe in the Lord Jesus, our passage says. That's it. You don't need to meet all these targets to be a Christian. You don't need to be a certain way or act a certain way. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Maybe pathfinders, platformers, maybe you feel like you're afraid to tell your friends that you're a Christian because you see the, the way Christianity is different from our culture around us. Maybe you feel that you might lose your friends. Maybe not just our younger folk either. Maybe some of our older folk here. You feel that you might lose uh, friendships. You might lose family members. You might not be friends with your work colleagues anymore. Our passage tells us God is in control. That the gospel message is so powerful. It can transform anyone. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you could tell that person that you fear telling that you're a Christian? You could explain the gospel message to them and they might be transformed. That's what our passage says can happen. But maybe you've been a Christian a long time. Maybe you know all this, but, but you're stuck at the moment in a rut. You're stuck facing a particular sin in your life that, that is holding you back, growing in your likeness and in your love of Jesus. Maybe you've been facing this particular sin for so long, it, it just begins to feel hopeless for you. Maybe you're just dragged down by it. Maybe you even feel like you're getting further away from God because of it. Our passage says, nothing is too strong for the gospel to overcome. Nothing is too strong to stop the gospel breaking in. Take heart. Trust in God. Trust in the gospel. Come back to it again. Read your Bible. Pray. Come back to the gospel. There's no easy answers sometimes. Sometimes many things plague us for years, but we can never be away from God. God never gives up on us if we trust in him. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Our passage has a final twist. The next morning, the jailer is told to release Paul and Silas, kick them out of the city, send them on the way. Foreign troublemakers taught a lesson. Magistrates, job done. Tick. 
But now Paul decides to reveal something he's kept close to his chest. Because it turns out that Paul and Silas aren't just two random rabble makers who've come from nowhere. They're actually Roman citizens. And that means that they've got privileges. The magistrates had no right to punish Roman citizens without a fair trial. In fact, Paul and Silas could complain. They could complain to the magistrates' bosses and get the magistrates in serious trouble for what they've done. When the magistrates find out, they're alarmed. They come and apologize to Paul and Silas. Instead of kicking them out of the city, they ask them kindly, please, would you possibly mind just leaving our city, please, and not causing trouble? Paul and Silas agree, but, but only after checking in on the city. You see, Paul and Silas, they don't want to cause trouble. Luke's making an apologetic point here. He's pointing out that it isn't the Christians that cause trouble wherever they go. It's the opponents of Christianity that cause trouble wherever they go. Paul and Silas aren't here to cause trouble. They're here to preach the gospel. And so Paul and Silas, they go back to Lydia's house where the first church is, and they check in on them. They make sure everyone's okay. By standing on their rights as Roman citizens, they prove that the disorder didn't come from them. It was their opponents that caused this trouble, and they care for this fledgling church. They want to make sure that these people meeting at Lydia's house will be protected, at least for some time. We know from Philippians that persecution will come again. Over the next chapters, we will see that being a Roman citizen doesn't save Paul or Christians from persecution. There will be a lot more where that came from. But there will be a lot more gospel transformation too. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the transformative power of the gospel. Thank you so much that you transform lives. That you save people from every uh, background, from whatever religion or class or culture or country they come from. You bring people into relationship with you. Thank you we are able to meet here in Manchester. Thank you that we're able to worship you, that you have planned that, that in your control you have brought that about. Thank you that in your transformative power you can change anyone here, anyone watching online who doesn't know you, you can transform them so that they know you. And Lord, we ask that you would. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.